Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Adams. Every week, we bring on some of the brightest leaders around the world to discuss issues facing high net worth individuals and family offices today. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Jill, Barbara, and Greg McCann with us. Jill is president of Simi Holdings, which provides wealth advisor services to the Mateel family. As a member of Simi since 1999, Jill's been involved in hundreds of successful business and philanthropic transactions that have helped the family to change the landscape of the Dayton region and several places around the world. Greg is the co-founder of the consulting firm Generation 6 Family Enterprise Advisors. As a thought leader, author, coach, consultant, and speaker, he works with family enterprises in the areas of leadership development, transitions, communication, and conflict resolution, and with a special emphasis on helping the next generation succeed in their careers and lives. Jill and Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Yeah, happy to join you. So we're talking about your work and in your book, which we get into specifically reshaping reality. I want to go right into it because the the premise behind your book is much different than a lot of the family office literature you see out there, which is talking about all the benefits. And you really jump into the challenges and some of the fundamental design flaws that exist in today's family office ecosystem. I'd love to understand the genesis and the story behind the motivation of writing the book and Maybe we can kind of start with Greg and then transition into to Jill, if that works. Sure. Brian, I think there are probably two aspects of it. One is the format that 25 years ago at Stetson, getting thought leaders in the field to collaborate on a truly a book, not eight separate articles, get people that represent the field to give you feedback before you finish the book. So that process was kind of unique. But I think the other part, and I'll let Jill build on this, is Jill and I, over the last five years, have just said, you know, the family office model, although it's done a lot of good over a lot of years, it seems like it's got some assumptions or what we ended up calling design flaws in them that just are overlooked, that aren't appreciated. And, you know, I have clients and they've said, you know, you sell a business and there's this kind of conveyor belt of the financial, legal, risk management industry that has these assumptions relatively baked in and nobody ever pauses and talks about the why or the how 
It's just the what, the finances and managing all that. But Jill, you can certainly add to that. Yeah, I I agree totally with what Greg said. Running a family office now, I've been with uh, Simi for 24 years and been the president for five. And just having explored all of that, Greg and I started having a lot of conversations around leadership and what should a family office be focused on and what should we be looking at? And a lot of our conversation went back to the thriving and health of the family and not back to the money. And I think what we did in one conversation was just said, what if we kind of turned the thinking on our on its head and said, what if we put the individual, the family member at the at the center and not the money at the center? You know, again, when you sell that company, you're saying, oh, gosh, how do I protect that money? How do I set up trusts and structures? And you get your accounts and attorneys involved. But I step back and say, how do you make sure the family thrives with this money? How do you ensure that they meet their goals? And that conversation isn't always had in a family office. And so that's where we really started was talking about what that might look like and how do we, how would you change how a family office was set up or function and the mindset of a family if you thought about it differently than just that conveyor belt that Greg was talking about. Yeah, I love the idea of having a dual mandate, right? Continue to get returns so that the corpus performs well, so that you can afford lifestyle and the overhead and continue to maintain that quality of life for the family. But don't lose sight of the concept that at the end of the day, we're talking about a family. It's not this nameless corporate entity that is just after quarter over quarter returns year over year. And I think especially early on, right, first generation families, it's very technically focused. Right. You know, how can we outperform the market? How can we not pay or how can we minimize our tax liability, et cetera, et cetera? And you you build out the family enterprise through a CFO, a CIO, president, general counsel. But there really hasn't been a lot of talk about the qualitative components of it, which you've really kind of jumped into quite a bit. So what's your, Jill, maybe we can go to you. Like what's your experience been from that perspective? I think you're exactly right. I want to make sure I make this point is the financial side, you know, that side of the house is really important. Nothing else exists. It's foundational to what a family office does. So we're not discounting that and what we're saying in this book by any stretch of the imagination. We can't do what we do without those resources available. But yeah, our journey has been much that way. I mean, I I actually started as a tax accountant working on the family's work back in the early 90s and came over. The office was started by our patriarch and a partner from a public accounting firm, right? It was very oriented toward that. But what we noticed over time was that's really important, right? We got all of that solidified. But as we moved into our third generation, it became, there's more, how do we make sure these young adults who are coming into this wealth and are coming into their own thrive? And how do we make it not be a burden? You hear a lot of people that have trusts talk about the burden of having a trust. And we don't think that that has to be the case. So we started just rethinking that, reimagining it, reframing it as how can these assets be used to help you to do whatever that is, whether that be be the most successful attorney in the country or that is 
to provide healthy drinking water to, you know, inner city youth to, I, I don't know what else. And how do we help them thrive? So we made investments in our organization in that work, as well as the investment side of the house. And I think it's an and conversation, not an or. And we've been able to reap benefits of that, both internally and being successful and leading the organization, but also we've made investments that I think have made the family thrive. And again, at the end of the day, Greg will say, you know, if these families that control a lot of the wealth in the world are thriving, then is the world a better place? Yeah, Greg, I see you nodding your head. What are you thinking? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I think the potential is just amazing. And a lot of the work Jill's done at SIMI is evidence of that. But to me, the core design flaw is outsourcing the sense of ownership of the family office, which the family can't do. And I think it all tends to flow from that. You know, and to build on what you both have just said, there's a quote from Peter Drucker they will probably get close to right, where he said, profit for a business is like oxygen for a person. Both are necessary for life, but hardly a good reason for living. And I think what you see is if you don't have that ownership, you don't even know if the financial returns are that good. So that starts to erode. Then the endless services start to amp up. But I think there's also a sense of what's the money for? What's our purpose? What's our why? You know, I think one of the best chapters in the book is by Paul Carbone, where he says, you know, in direct investing, which I've heard about for years in the family office field, he said, but if you frame it as a way to create purpose for the rising gen, which is a big challenge in most family offices, if you frame it to take advantage of the patient capital families have that VCs don't have, then you can night around purpose of why don't we empower family businesses as part of our legacy and purpose and get good financial long-term returns. It's that kind of thinking that I think, you know, the book was about. We didn't want to write a how-to book where you just fill in a template. We just wanted to get some thought leaders to give people ideas to rethink this tremendous resource that has done a lot of good, but I think the potential is still far greater. You know? Well, and to build on that, Greg, I think another one of the design flaws that we no noticed is this idea that the family office is a cost center and not a value builder or value creator. And that value isn't just those investment returns in that portfolio and building on that and definitely is part of it. But it's also how do we create value for the human, the individual, for them to help nurture them through their journey and create human beings that are making better decisions, are more thoughtful about it and have good perspective as they move forward. And I think that's another one that goes right along with what you were talking about. Yeah, I think we've all witnessed a family where they're well beyond their liquidity event. They no longer have an operating company. They're a, a purely financial family. People have different terms for that. But when that founding entrepreneurial generation passes away and there's no longer that glue that binds everyone together because there is an operating company or this entrepreneurial story or a way to you know bring everyone together, when it's just about the money and you're talking about basis points, or exotic tax structures and schemes that you can get into, it's really hard to have a sense of community there. And that's where I think a lot of families have revisited having, you know, the annual meeting, maybe in a place that holds some special value to the family. You've seen the introduction of a chief learning officer, maybe, yeah. you know, some more family therapy type dynamics coming into the fold, which I think is a really healthy thing. Jill, have you witnessed, I know you, your chapter kind of 
goes into some of this as well. Right. Yes, we've done all those things. So we've had a psychologist as well as an individual that has a lot of experience with family dynamics and the Bowen theory on retainer for decades in this family. So they are very committed to this work and to being, you know, they're a family first family. So they want to make sure that family, their family stays together. That's a very important thing for them. So absolutely having retreats, having other reasons to get together. But I will say as our third generation is now coming on and Greg and I were talking about this in preparation for this podcast, they're having to do it all over again. This isn't stagnant. We had a good transition from our first to second generation, but our third generation are now in, you know, in their 20s and 30s. And they're asking, what is this going to look like? We, and we want a voice now. So this is an ongoing practice. This isn't something you do once and it's done and you wait 15 or 20 more years and do it again. This is something you have to practice daily, weekly, monthly. And so we're really stepping back into it pretty heavily just this month, trying to figure out how they want this to look for that second and third generation where it's a different transition. The first one was more of what I would call a gauntlet pass where we're, we're just, you know, G1 said, G2 picked a person, G1 said, here you go, take it. G2, G3 isn't going to be that. They've got years of overlap here of working together and that's what they should be doing, right? To create this sense of community and shared purpose around this and make a decision what they do and what they do not want to do together. Because I think that's really important. That's an option is not doing things together as well. I don't know, Greg, you have anything to add to that? Well, I was, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, Jill, that, you know, the business model, you know, Brian, if I came to you and said, look, here's an idea for a business model where we're going to have one client who is also your boss, who doesn't understand your industry and doesn't want to. The only way to get new clients is by birth or marriage. I don't think Shark Tank or you would say, I'm going to put my money in this. So it, it's not strictly a for-profit business. It's more uh, a hybrid, I think. And so how do you get momentum with the family? You know, I have a client, they sold their business about 18 months ago, three members in their 40s of the rising gen, very successful in outside careers. But they said it's really hard to get motivated on this stuff because there's never a deadline. There's not real high levels of accountability. And you always think you can outsource it to one of the advisors. So it is, like Jill said, it's an ongoing practice. And to use the analogy of going to the gym, nobody ever stands up at a conference and says, I have research here that says you should never work out. Everybody knows we should do it. How do you get yourself to the gym every day is the challenge. And I think, you know, just financial returns is seldom enough to motivate most families. Right. Yeah. And it it, it seems like what's been going on the last 10 years as we've all seen the institutionalization and professionalization of the of the space, right? Family offices have become their own asset class. They're competing directly with private equity and Wall Street and wirehouses for human capital. And that whole development is occurring. I think it really works cross purposes to the soft touch issues that occur within the family itself. And I think when you highlight this, it, it is causing some estrangement between the family office and the family members themselves, because unless you had a multi-strat hedge fund background and came up in finance or private equity or an ancillary third-party kind of service provider relationship, it's really hard to understand what the heck these people do every day because it's becoming extremely technical. 
you know, I'm a CPA and a lawyer by training, and I sit in on some of the investment reports, and it does seem like it's the London subway map presented in ancient, you know, Sanskrit. Yeah, it's hard to follow. Brian, I wanted to mention you had brought up chief learning officer, which is a big theme throughout the book. Yep. I was lucky enough six years ago to work with Jay or uh, Jay Hughes to start a group that we meet about nine times a year, but I think we're up to 60 members from around the world, that this is a growing trend, a growing profession that's still being defined. But I think the a premise is generally the financial capital ought to be in service of the other types of capital. And at least families starting to reframe things that way and start to have the discussion about that. Because if we doubled our money but corrupted our family, it's hard to call that a success. Yeah. Well, Jill, you talk a lot about reframing in your chapter. Would love to hear your thoughts piggyback on top of what Greg just said. Yeah, uh, it's been an interesting journey that Greg and I have been on that you know, led to the book, but also has led to, I think, a lot of change here in our office. And it's, you know, thinking about how to build culture in a family office, back to what you were just saying about talent. I mean, it's it's hard to find talent these days, right? And the opportunities in a family office usually aren't exponential. And you're not talking about you know, we're going to add 50 people, most family offices, you know, over the next, that's not our goal is to add more headcount. It's really to find solutions and value as efficiently and effectively as we can. So it, it's an interesting place we sit in when we look for talent. So we've done a lot of work about creating a culture in an organization that you want to stay at. And we've got, you know, average tenure here is probably a little over 15 years. And we haven't grown that much since, you know, probably in that time, we've grown a little bit and had some people come and go. And we have some of those rules, but we're trying to create a stable organization because families don't like change. You're intimately involved in their lives, so they want to keep you there. So, so we've done a lot of work internally on trying to build out that same agility and capacity that we're talking about with building in the family within our organization. And really leading and building a culture differently than maybe thought of before. But that takes time and money and effort by our staff and, and commitment. Just like we were talking about going to the gym on the family side, you got to go to the gym on the family office side. So we spend a lot of time building leadership. We have a, a program in our office called Thing One and Thing Two. Thing One is about me and Thing Two is about we. Thing One is all about doing whatever makes me happy. So we have people, we put money towards development. We have people learning to play golf and learning to play chess and volunteering and doing a multitude of other things, woodworking classes. And we'll pay for some of that to enhance the overall human, right? Again, back to put the human at the center. We believe that in our office as well. And thing two is about we. So how do we get better as an organization? And that's where we really worked a lot with Greg on building a culture being vulnerable, we use Lencioni's five behaviors of an effective team, we like to call it, and have really built on our trust and our ability to deal with conflict and all those things. And what's been really fascinating, one, we did that over a pandemic, right? We continued, we started this work before the pandemic and we did it during a pandemic, which was amazing. And two, after four and a half years of doing this, we have seen the changes we've made come out as changes in how the family interacts together. They didn't have anything to do with it. They sat in no meeting with us. But what we found is you change one person in the system or one part of the system, and the whole system changes. So you can do this work. The family doesn't always have to lead it. 
in the, our case, really, we started it in the family office. And the family has now said, we want more of this kind of work. And we've been using different consultants because we think that's important. But we've started to do it with the family as well, which is really impactful on the whole system. And Joe, can you t- one last thing, and a lot more fun to come to work every day. Go ahead, Greg. Joe, Joe we, were, we were talking this morning, and just to get a little uh, granular, if somebody sat in on one of your meetings, how would your meetings sound different, both, the, I guess, the framing, the trust? You know, how does it look differently if Brian was to sit in on meetings at Simi for a day? Oh, yeah, that's really fascinating. I was just talking with one of our, our held of our wealth advisory group last week, and she sat in a meeting that had no agenda. They spent an hour and a half and got nothing really done and scheduled another meeting to finish talking about it. When she walked out, somebody grabbed her on the sideline and was like, hey, I want to talk to you about something that they should have talked about in the meeting. She came back to the office and she sat down and she's like, I just had the worst meeting ever because those are our meetings five years ago. Today, a meeting happens in the meeting. There's an agenda. You get done what you need to get done. You understand why you're there. We have in the book, there's these different gears that we came up with and we need to know what gear we're in. So are we problem solving? Do you just need to complain? Voice a concern? Do you want it? Do we need to make a decision today? What do we need to do? And it was so fascinating to me that she got so frustrated by a meeting that ran like our meetings ran five years ago. So we're more efficient and more effective in doing our work. And we don't have all that other clutter and that other meeting never happens because we got done what we needed to get done. Interesting enough, I don't go to meetings now that don't have an agenda because I don't know why I'm there. So you must not have needed me. So we all buy into it too, so that you do it every time, all the time. It's built into our DNA now, into our culture. Exceptional family offices, family enterprises, wealth management, and financial services organizations require superior leadership to successfully thrive in today's competitive environment. This is why I'd like to introduce you to our new sponsor, Mac International. Mac International is recognized as the premier boutique firm that specializes in providing retained executive search and strategic human capital consulting solutions to single and multi-client family offices, family enterprises, and the full spectrum of wealth management advisory, investment management, and financial services firms that serve ultra-high net private investors and family offices on a national and international basis. If you're interested in learning more about Mac International, visit their website at macinternational.com. Yeah, I want to go back, Jill, to a comment you made about how it's actually fun to come to work. Yeah. I know we discussed about how there's this institutionalization and focus on technical acumen within the family office professional world. That being said, I think there's also a huge opportunity for a value proposition, both from the professional non-family member perspective, but also the family members themselves, right? Because as you go multi-generational, it becomes, in essence, a multi-family office, and you have to have a value proposition to keep that capital in-house. And just getting kind of beta returns is not really a value proposition to younger generations any longer. They want something more. And I think a lot of employees do as well. So could you maybe speak to the value proposition that your office has and some of the things you've done on a culture change basis to engender that type of value proposition? Yeah. So I totally agree with everything you just said there, Brian. I believe that 
we have to create something different. Like you said, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we can get better returns. Maybe we can't. But what's, what's the secret sauce to it? The one thing we do know is you bring all those people around the table. One of the things that family members don't want to do, given this business model that we're in, and maybe don't even have the skill set to do, and, and should we even ask them to do, is to pull that holistic view together, right? How many accountants, attorneys, money managers, you know, they could have seven or eight trustees, lots of people sitting around the table that are responsible for those things. I think one of the values that a family office provides is bringing that all together for them and quarterbacking that for them. But even above that is we can help them to understand that as well, right? And we are talking to them on a regular basis about where they're trying to go in their life. We have no need to bill hours. We can spend as many hours as we need to with any of the family members, and we do, especially the rising gen right now. So things like sitting down with them and talking through those things, prepare, helping them prepare for a meeting with their trustee. Who else is sitting down with them and helping them to know how to have that conversation? That's not innate. Who knows that? We sometimes assume you should know it because we live in this world, but these people don't know how to do that. And that's okay. That's why we're there. That's the value. And it's taking that view of everything that they're doing, philanthropy, investments, learning and growing where they're at in their life. Are they planning to have a family? Are they not? Are, you know, just take everything in their life, what the relationship is with their grandparents or their parents or their siblings or their cousins and being able to help them navigate those conversations. I spent a lot of time right now with our third generation talking to them about how to have a conversation they need to have with someone else, right? And asking them the question that maybe no one else will ask because we know everything we're trusted, and we get to the core of the issue. I was just in a conversation with one of our family members last week with our head of wealth advisory. We unpacked a question. It took us a while. There's another example in the book. It took us a while, but if I would have answered his initial complaint with the office, I would have gotten it all wrong. After about 45 minutes, we finally got to what the real crux of the problem was. And now we have a pathway to a solution for him. But if I answered the first question and just went and solved that without digging in, we never would have gotten there. And he, it would have come back and out in a different way because we weren't going to solve the problem. And I think that time that we can spend, and so that's on the family side. On the family office side, I worked in client service at, at Arthur Anderson early on in my career. I realized when I stepped into this job, I didn't know my clients at all. And I really love getting to know them. And when they're successful, there is no better feeling in my mind than watching them be successful. Like you are a part of that. You are a part of these great things that these families are doing. You're not in the front, but you are a part. And that's an amazing feeling every day. You know, Brian, if I can draw out two things baked into what Jill just said. Jill has the ability to coach people. And by that, I mean, she, she knows when to say, I trust the other person has the answer inside them. I'm going to bring it out. I think one of the risks of so many technically trained people is they jump to problem solving constantly. And coaching is, is a great gear for a leader to have. And Jill has it. I think she also has developed the ability to stop and reframe something before jumping to problem solving. Is this a tax issue or a family issue? And that reframing makes a heck of a difference in how effective you are. But Joe, I wanted to ask, how much of your time now, maybe compared to five years ago, do you spend leading and how much value does that create? 
versus the technical expertise role? I hate to say I'm not a great technical expertise person anymore. I spend probably 85% of my time leading and support, you know, clearing barriers for my staff, having the conversations we were talking about, thinking about strategically how do we continue to move this forward. And I spend very little time. I have a really great staff and I empower them to take care of the technical pieces and learn these skill sets as well, because it's not just one person. Everyone in the organization needs to have them. And I feel like you can leave from anywhere. I mean, our staff accountant leads something every day, right? They have to get some work done and they're responsible for that. So they need to take a leadership role in it. So these are skills. And Greg, you'll remember when we started this, you know, we started work on me. I started as the leader to work on myself and my leadership skills. I brought it to my leadership team, asked them to be a part of it, and we gained knowledge and traction around it. And we had the rest of the staff come to us and say, we see you showing up differently and we see you benefiting from this. Can we do this work too? And so we brought Greg in and for the last two and a half years, he's been doing this work with our entire staff. We have 21 people, so it's not a ton of people, but everyone from top to bottom gets to experience this work. And again, back to what's the value to our staff. Most places you don't get that kind of leadership skill training when you've been out of school two or three years, right? We're investing in them from day one to make them great leaders. And we do understand that maybe that leadership and those skill sets will take them elsewhere. But man, we're going to be proud of them for being, you know, part of our team forever. So... And it's a great segue into a part of the discussion that you all get into, which is the difference between a family business and a family office, right? And oftentimes, I think, especially from a technical perspective, you called it out. You go into problem-solving mode. I know I do this oftentimes. And you say, well, we can solve this estate issue by putting together some grats, and then we can have this distribution policy. And you put together the PowerPoint, you get it blessed by outside counsel, you get all the right people to sign off on it, and then you bring it to the board or whoever the, you know, whoever's going to say grace over it, and they just nod and say, okay, like this sounds good, but unless they have the rationale behind it and that why component, which you can't really understand unless you really know your clients, it can just cause this, this gap between understanding from the family office and the family members. And that can breed resentment and confusion. And if these people aren't, you know, CPAs or attorneys by trade, it can be really overwhelming and they just kind of shut down oftentimes. And that is a directly cross purpose to what, you know, the technical advisor is trying to accomplish there. You know, Brian, throughout much of my career with families, be it family offices or family businesses, step one is usually what's going on in the family. What do they want? What's their purpose? Why are they stuck here? And that's difficult. That often requires some preparation, some vulnerability, some trust, some stretching. And then step two is the the agreement, the structure, all of that. But you can't start with step two and wallpaper over the family dynamics. It never works. And yet I think it's seductive to think, especially if you're trained in writing legal agreements, you know, what's the saying? If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So two siblings start to argue and the estate guy says, we can write an agreement on this and it's not going to work. And again, those agreements are vital, but they're step two. Yeah. This has been a great conversation. There's a statement that you all made 
in the notes that you provided beforehand that has really stuck with me. And I, I want to direct this to Greg at first and then get Jill's thoughts. But many wealthy people do not think of themselves as rich. And it would be better if they did. What do you mean by that? I think, you know, as somebody who does a lot of coaching, owning your strengths, weaknesses, and blind spots is just part of being a great person, a great leader. You know, one gentleman I talked to, I think he had $50 million. He said, but that's not really rich. And I thought, well, I think a lot of people would probably vote that be on the rich list. I think it's owning the the privilege, power, and, and purpose there. As Jill said at the beginning, when these families get healthier, the world benefits. Right. So I think stepping into it and owning, I think uh, an amazing chapter is Jill Shipley's first chapter on wealth that talks about this is one of the few groups it's okay to sort of chastise as opposed to celebrate. So I think there is a sense of occasionally shame, especially for the following generations. You know, one client family, I have the, the one daughter in college actually wants to be a communist. Now, maybe it's a, a passing phase. But she thinks everything the family did to make money was terrible. And this is a noble family that has won awards and did everything you want them to do. So I do think part of this is almost a call to celebrate the success and good families that do great things. I totally agree with that, Greg. I think the work that the first generation did and, and second gen, you know, and multiple generations potentially have done to build this wealth think when it actually comes to fruition, right? And it's not the widget company anymore. It's actually the tangible, somebody put a dollar figure on it, creates a lot of that, that shame and guilt. But these are also the people that are, are changing the world. We watch it every day. I mean, it's so profound, the work that they are doing, that, you know, how do you get them healthy and comfortable and thriving in this situation where they have been given great gifts and see them as gifts and not as burdens. I think we we reframe that all the time that this is a gift you were given. And we had one family member say, my job is to steward these assets. My job is to do that. So I want to be trained and understand enough to be able to do that. We see that as just such a great frame in which to look at this through. And she's done a absolutely amazing job at stewarding these assets through multiple generations. This is hard work. And like he's, like Greg said, you know, they can be chastised for it. But if we can be a support system to them to tell them how hard this is and to validate the feelings they feel around it and to help them to thrive and be more successful with it, then again, I feel like we've, we've done our job. Even the ones that, that question it, and you can have those conversations as well if you've got the trust and the vulnerability to have those conversations with them. You know, Brian, Joe and I feel really passionate about this. And I think, you know, the authors we got were as talented as they were generous. I think we really created a integrated book. But I mean, I think one of the things we really pushed back on, they said reshaping reality was too audacious a title. And Joe and I overrode the group and said, we think if we make an impact on this group, we will change the world because they're changing the world in any way they want to. And if right. we can influence that, that's not a bad way to spend a couple hundred hours putting this thing together. Yeah, I think the concept of reframing is really helpful. I know with our family, we talk about the corpus of assets or the partnership. We don't have an operating company any longer. Is that we 
frame it as it gives us the ability to be of service or an entrepreneur and a wealth creator ourselves, right? And if you think about, if you look at the metrics and the numbers about what private enterprise and family-held businesses provide to the American economy in terms of GDP and employment, I mean, it's the backbone of what's created this country as private enterprise and entrepreneurial enterprise. And I think if you can reframe it with some of the inheritors that way, because we've seen the numbers, I think something like 80% of significant wealth inheritors would rather reject the money, right? And there's a lot of work to be done, in my opinion, to help them through that process and understand, not from a guilt perspective, but there's a huge opportunity it is. to be entrepreneurial, to be of service, to be a steward, to continue this family legacy that was created before you. It's a really cool thing and pretty unique in this time, considering the, the levers that we can pull. And especially given the leadership transition that's occurring across many of these families, both from a family member perspective and a family office executive perspective, there's a real chance and a real opportunity to refresh a lot of these conversations and, and bring in resources to help there. You know, Brian, and Joe's heard me talk about this, as a leadership coach, probably 25 to 30% of my time in a coaching session is helping somebody frame or reframe something. In the chapter, we cite a study done by the author of What's Your Problem? where he surveyed CEOs in 17 countries, 85% of them said, we're poor at framing. We jump right to problem solving. And I, one of my clients used to say, it's so seductive just to solve the problem. But if you haven't framed it right, you're probably wasting your time. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think many of us who were trained, you know, I'm a trained attorney, Jill, you're a CPA, you know, public accounting background. It's just the sequential, like, what's the next yeah. thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? But the problem is you can find yourself down this rabbit hole where you've arrived somewhere and the product and the widget you've created is, you know, succeeds in, in solving the problem, but you've really forgotten even what the problem was that you were trying to solve in the first place, right? Yeah, I use the metaphor of you think you're playing whack-a-mole and at least at the end of the day you said, God, I'm so busy and stressed, I must be doing something right. If you just thought maybe if I unplugged the machine, the moles would quit coming up. Yeah, well said. Well, and I, I agree, yeah. Brian, with what you said about entrepreneurialism, too. It takes a lot of different forms, right? Entrepreneurialism, you know, when, when I, we step back, is, is about taking risks. And our patriarch, very entrepreneurial. He's given back to entrepreneurs. Uh, he has, they created Aileron here in Dayton, which is an entrepreneurial center. And that means different things to different people. And so how do you allow space for people to explore how they want to be entrepreneurial? How do they want to take these resources they've been given? Steward, entrepreneur, in service, I love that as well. Like, what do they want to do with them? And that's success. If you make an intentional choice and do that, then that's success. Versus putting people in a, on a path or in a place where they're stuck doing what someone else asked them to do. I think that's really important to these people being able to thrive and make a difference in the world. Because if you give them that space, then they will do amazing things. And we just need to be there to watch and support it and celebrate it, as Greg said before. You know, Joe, to build on that, and I think Andrew Kite's chapter does a great job. You know, the financial risk side is just brilliant. That's all set up. I think families, how many families have a chief learning officer? How many families more have a more. development plan for the individual? Now, it's a growing trend. But, you know, I, Jill and I talked this morning in preparation for this. 
it's astounding because this isn't poor inner city youth where we're looking to do charity work. This is some of the wealthiest people in the world, and they're not getting the help that they probably need the most. You know, Scott Peppett has a great line. If the family office isn't in service of improving the family, who is? Well, what I often will challenge people on is if you do a pie chart of all the overhead associated with the family office and you take a look at how much is going towards tax, audit, investments, right? These technical estate planning, et cetera, and how much is going towards like mental health, wellness, family therapy, family relationship improvement, dynamics, things that you and I, that the three of us all know are much more likely to blow the family up than allocating to the wrong private right. equity group. Right. But on a percentage basis, the allocation is super low to minuscule. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's terrible. <laughs> well, we, we jumped right into it and you all have been awesome. We'll have to have another session. Great. Talk more about the book, like talk more about what the book is, how people can buy it. I know it, it's an interesting setup that, that you all did for this. So maybe yeah. give us a little bit more information there. Well, I think, again, the process where we got some thought leaders, we talked for months before we really started writing. The generosity of the group came up with both the design flaws and the mindset chart that we've talked about. Those became the anchor for the each chapter I had to reference that. We had a writing consultant who was incredibly helpful, Lisa Bennett. Jill and I were kind of the conceptual editors, keep things aligned. We had a similar format. And it was calls at least once a month with the whole group, several calls with Jill and I constantly. And then I think when the second amazing thing, besides the author's generosity, we invited 15 people that we thought represented kind of a focus group in the field, new, experienced, innovative, conservative. We asked them to read Jill Shipley's chapter and one other chapter. Every one of the 15 read the whole book. We spent a day at Aileron getting feedback. And at least I thought the chapters were near done. I think they probably improved the book 50%. And then we captured their voice in a chapter. So it was, I think, a lot of labor, a labor of love. But I think it really produced an integrated, thoughtful book. But, Jill, you can probably add a lot to that. Yeah. And I think you described the process really well. I think what we were, our hope for the book is, again, this isn't rocket science. This is things I think. I think, and what we heard from the gathering group, people are thinking about, but they don't really know where to start. They don't know what to do. They don't necessarily feel like maybe the family, they have the buy-in of the family. So what we wanted to do was just create a conversation more than anything else in the industry, and maybe give you some different on-ramps to ways of starting to think about this differently. It's not prescriptive. It's not like do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. You can read one chapter. You can read the whole book. Um, if something resonates, start there. We we felt like we were trying to create something that allowed you to take your family, whoever that is, whether you're a family member or a family office staff or executive, and say, I'm going to try something. I'm going to, and, and as I said earlier, I think what we've learned is when one part of the system shows up differently, the system changes. So it was kind of our encouragement of just, if you want to change the system, take a step, do something. Do something small. We've failed at many things. We've tried a lot of stuff that didn't work, but we keep trying things. And then we've practiced it on a daily basis. And I think then you get to see the, you start to reap those rewards and the snowball just starts to kind of go down the hill. And it's been really successful in our office. And we hope that it can help others figure out 
whether it's just reframing conversations, making sure you have agendas, knowing what gear you're in. There's lots of different little things you can start to try and see if it starts to change things. And they aren't expensive. And there are a lot of them aren't really that time consuming. So again, we're here in service of the industry too and wanting to make the industry better. So we hope that this book will do some of that. Yeah. And more mechanically, it's available on Amazon. You know, you can order it pretty easily. I want to add, I think I'm super proud of the work Jill and I did here and, and everybody that contributed to it. It has led Generation 6, the new firm that I'm with, to start an innovation series. So this is the first. And I think the spirit of that is collaborating deepening the discussion. So Andrew Kite from Generation 6 is about to hold an event in January on mental health in family enterprises with a similar format. So we're hoping that's something we are able to continue to sort of give back to the field. I love it. Well, thank you both for coming on. For our listeners, please do leave us a review and a rating. Let us know your favorite part of the conversation. Jill, Greg, people that come on the show, we ask them a question to finish out. So we'll start with Jill. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Yes, I do have a daily practice that helps bring peace to my life. And actually, Greg and I were talking about this morning. It's one of those practice things. So I get up very, very early every morning. And the first thing I do is I go and walk my dog. I live in Ohio. It can get cold in the morning, but it's really my centering port of my day. I clear my head, think. He agrees with everything I say the entire walk. He's a very good boy. Mm. But yeah, it it's really helps to just center everything and get me off on the right foot every morning. So, and I've been doing that for the last, not with him for 10 years, but I've been up walking for the last 10 years. Love it. I do something very similar. Greg, you're up. You know, inspired, I think, by the leadership agility model I use, they say the top 10% of leaders tend to do three things. So I meditate and pray every day. I walk virtually every day. And then the one I added about 10, 12 years ago was a gift giving, which is a creative practice. So I try to give five gifts a week for no reason, which has really been a fun practice. Love it. Well, thank you all again for the time. Best of luck with the book. I'm sure I'll run into both of you at various conferences here over the next 12 months. Encourage people to go out, buy the book. It's, it's terrific. Chapters are, are wonderful. The setup makes a lot of sense. And I wish you both best of luck moving forward. Thanks, Brian. Thank you very much, Brian. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.